Well, I'd like to welcome you all to this Rothschild & Co podcast. My name is Dean Lush. I'm the Executive Vice Chairman in our Wealth Management business in London, and I joined the firm in 1986. Arguably, we're in unprecedented times at present. And in such periods, we often find ourselves looking back and considering how we have survived and in fact thrived in crises periods throughout our very long history as a firm. So today, we wanted to share some of that history with you. In other words, to use that history in a contemporary way. In order to do this, we're going to delve into the Rothschild archive to see what historical insights we can find. The archive is an independent charitable trust and provides a uniquely valuable resource for reflecting on our past and documenting our 200 year history as a family controlled firm. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Melanie Aspie. Melanie is the director of the Rothschild Archive and began working there in 1994. So I guess that means we have about 60 years of Rothschild experience between us. So Melanie, I suppose during any period of crisis, we naturally refer back to the past for guidance. And your job as an archivist is all about preserving that past. Looking back over the long history of the business and the Rothschild family, what do you think the firm's origins and more recent history can tell us about our ability to cope with crises? Thank you very much for that introduction, Dean. 60 years is quite something, isn't it? I think we should have a party maybe when we're all out of lockdown. But I have the privileged position of having worked at the archive for so long because one constantly learns from history, I think. It can offer you comfort and challenges and can help you, as you said, Dean, to understand how you've reached the situation that you're in now. And the Rothschild family's origins back in Frankfurt in the 18th century were actually really tough. They were members of the Jewish community there. They were, like the rest of their community, forced to live in a ghetto under very um, constrained conditions. So their everyday life um, was a struggle and a challenge, and their business could only really develop after they began to, to think about other opportunities throughout Europe. But the person that we look back to as the founder of the business was a really inspiring individual, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, who'd built up a real sense of trust with his clients. And uh, this was through the business. He dealt in coins, antique coins and medals and British goods, particularly um, British textiles. But he also um, was very keen to communicate truthfully with his clients. This was quite a, a sort of notable point of his business that when he was selling the coins and the medals, he developed a kind of, um, we facetiously refer to it as a mail order system. It wasn't really that, but he produced a catalogue um, so that people could understand, his clients could see what the cost of each of the medals was and that he was being given an honest shot at buying that medal at the, the market rate. So he, he developed a reputation for truth and honesty. And around this time, too, of course, um, they were in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, a family business. They were active during the Napoleonic Wars when there were other similar difficulties in carrying out business across um, national boundaries. So there were was the, the Napoleonic blockade that they had to um, negotiate with. 
And one of the one of the first clients that we point to is actually a client of Meyer Amschel Rothschild, who was one of his princely clients for coins and medals. In 1806, this man, the Elector of Hesse, had to go into exile when Napoleon took over his territory. And he then needed somebody to invest his assets for him. And the person he turned to, the family he turned to, was Meyer Amschel and his family. By that time, Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who founded the Rothschild business in London, the third son of Meyer Amschel, had established himself in Manchester as a textile merchant so that the family business could get the earliest news, in a sense, the latest patterns, the latest designs in textiles. And they were able then to, to be um, a more efficient communicator with their clients. But having the trust of the elector made Nathan Mayer Rothschild a fairly big player uh, in London on the financial markets. There is a, a, a pair of, of pictures that many people who visited um, the Rothschild's um, business at Newcourt may have seen, which is of the elector handing over his assets to the Rothschilds. And at the end of the Napoleonic War, these assets being returned with interest. So both parties really benefited from this close relationship at a time of really less than ideal business environment. So the trust that developed there really underpins, I think, the development of the business and communicating what was going on um, was clearly very important to them at that time. The brothers, like many other businesses, used any method that was at their disposal, so letters and pigeon post. And it's not just the 18th and the 19th uh, century, but recently we've got lots of lessons to look for uh, in Rothschild history about how the family have survived various crises and challenging times. In the Second World War, for example, um, Baron Guy de Rothschild fought for the Free French. His cousins were taken into custody, um, serving time in Colditz. Many other members of the family had to escape France through European nations and out uh, into America. And that same family, once again, within a generation, were coping with the effects of the French government under President Mitterrand, vowing to nationalise banks. And uh, the family found that they were suffering from this nationalisation. They were compensated for it, but there was a great deal of resistance to them actually setting up business again using their own name. But there's a, a sense of entrepreneurial zeal that you can see. Um, in the 1980s that takes you right back um, to the to the beginning of the Rothschild business, in fact. I notice actually, Melanie, that you mentioned the communication element in some of these stories. And I guess this especially resonates for all of us in a period of lockdown. How important do you think communication has been for the family in coping with crises in the past? I think it can't be um, overestimated, really. And in some ways, the current situation takes us right back to our origins because we're no longer in the same room. We're no longer in the same business. So we have to devise methods of making sure that we all know what's going on, who's doing what and when and what the plan is. And so I think communications really can't be um, overestimated. In the archive, we have Obviously, lots of pieces of paper, lots of boxes of correspondence from agents in the past, from family members, uh, between family groups across European borders. Um, and one of my favourites, very sort of moving um, experience one day of going through some letters, a series of letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters um, from another banking family in Germany, the Warburg family. 
there's almost a letter a day. It's a very, very regular communication because they're in business together. So they need to keep each other in touch with what's happening. But then there's a sudden stop, the First World War, and there are no boxes after the latter part of 1914. There is just one letter in its own special envelope in 1918, and that's a personal letter of condolence from one family on the other side of a political barrier at that time to the Rothschild family, expressing condolence on the death of one of the Rothschild partners. And that's it. There's no business possibility, but that sense of hoping for better days, feeling an empathy with people during the war, it's, it's terribly moving to see it. And within the decade, um, Sigmund Warburg, who, Warburg who became a really important uh, figure. Sigmund Warburg was a, a key player in the city of London for, for decades. But as a young man, he um, served a kind of apprenticeship, an internship at Newcourt um, with the Rothschild business. And in 1926, when he was 24, he wrote a very polite thank you letter for the experience to the then partners of the business. And he talked about the honour it was to be at Newcourt. He'd learned a great deal. Everything he'd learned would serve him well in his future life. But he says, I learned something which will be far more important to me in my future life. And that's the fine tradition of Newcourt, which combines business with humanity without neglecting either. And that's just an astonishing thing to say. And to see that in, in reality, to see that letter and to think about the time he took and the period in which he writes is, is really incredibly touching. So that's one example of a, of a business relationship. And then the family relationship, too, is really critical. In the 19th century, the Rothschild family found themselves in different European capitals, as I've mentioned, but they missed their families. They missed the place that they grew up in and they wrote back and forward constantly from various cities, asking how people were and being interested in, in various childhood events and so on. But we also have a really important example of the Rothschild family taking it one step further, and that is in letters that they wrote to each other in Judendeutsch. They were writing in their own language in German, but they wrote in the Hebrew script which meant that these were virtually unreadable by anybody else who might intercept the post. So that idea of communication, rapid communication and secure communication is really has been a really important part um, of the business uh, throughout. But in 1848 in Europe, 1848 was the year of revolutions. And one member of the family in Britain, Charlotte de Rothschild, who kept fantastic diaries and wrote copious letters to her sons. So we have a wonderful narrative of this period of history. She records in her diaries of the panic in the French family because they thought they were losing their business in 1848. They had no idea then, of course, of the outcome of the revolution. And that's what's really important about reading historical documents. They didn't know. They weren't historical documents to the people writing them. They had no idea what the outcome would be. And we do. We've got the benefit of hindsight. Um, but she spoke about the family taking refuge in London and said that it would never do to give up hope of a brighter European and a Rothschild future. So there's that sense of, of optimism and knowing that because they're working together, they're going to be stronger. There's, there's a better chance of them surviving. And something also from the letters that um, it actually rings lots of bells with, with today's um, situation 
is that in the 19th century, there were many outbreaks of cholera. A lot of our agents, a lot of the Rothschild agents across Europe had been maintaining a correspondence, keeping everybody in touch with what was happening, what the latest business was. And occasionally then you'll get this letter that says, this will be the last one from me for some time. There's rumour that the cholera is in the next town, so I'm moving on. Sometimes they manage to write from that next town that they've moved on to. But you see the interruption of epidemics and pandemics. And you also see the visible and now rather touching efforts to um, protect themselves from these terrible diseases. Um, the letters were actually treated when they got to the forwarding agents, to the, in a sense, the post offices of the day. Um, so they, there was an attempt sometimes to treat the letters with vinegar to hope that that wouldn't carry the, the disease on to the recipient. And the letters might be stabbed or they might be slashed so that the vinegar um, would be uh, put into it. Um, and I know it's no longer pierced letters and carrier pigeons, Dean, but we must be doing similar things today in the 21st century version to keep communicating. Well, uh, it's a very valid point, Melanie. Uh, obviously, it's changed a bit just in my time at the at the firm. When I started, we had telexes, we had faxes, we didn't have the internet, the computers on our desk were enormous, uh, nothing like what we have today. And I think very early on doing the job of looking after clients, one learned the importance of picking up the phone to clients, especially, I have to say, in difficult times, such as we have been going through recently and as we have gone through many times in the past. That idea that you don't leave the client wondering, you keep them informed, you keep them reassured, you build on that trust that you mentioned, Melanie, uh, whether it was in the stock market crash of 1987 or the dot-com boom and bust or the global financial crisis, or as I say, currently too, looking to build on those existing relationships that we sought to cultivate over many years. And I think another thing that occurs to me is the need to be prepared, to do the work in advance, to really know the businesses that we're invested in on behalf of our client, and also to have, if I can put it this way, fire drills in place in preparation to enable us to cope with crises as they happen. So if one has the strategies in place to begin with, it, it's so much, uh, you're in such a much stronger position when the next crisis occurs. That's certainly what we found in the financial crisis of 2007 to nine. And certainly we've had our fire drills in place during this period. Uh, we've seen that come through, I think, very clearly. So I think that that real commitment to building relationships and to the concept of partnership, not just within the firm, but with our clients, is what gives us our uniquely strong and stable network. And I think I really do believe that this has helped us be prepared for periods of volatility and crises in the past, and certainly continues to do so today. So, Melanie, I, I suppose to throw it back to you, do you have some thoughts on, on that from the perspective of our history, including more recently? I think, you, again, the importance of partnership as well as communication can't be um, overestimated. And the Rothschild family, descendants of the founder, were bound together in legal partnerships, but there was a sense of partnership that has pervaded the company right from the beginning to today, I think. And that's 
not necessarily just legal structures, partnerships and so on, or the, the term has a broader meaning than the, the actual legal sense. And I thought something struck me very early on in the lockdown period. We've been having some really excellent updates from the heads of our business, from Alex de Rothschild, from Robert Lighthow and so on. And I, I thought it was really um, telling that they thanked all members of the team. So it's the IT people that have enabled us to, to do this, to make this podcast, Dean, which will in itself become part of the archive, I think, as we go forward. Um, but that sense of everybody needing to pull their weight, whatever it is you do, you've got a talent, you've got a skill, and together we can be stronger than if we were on our own. And that really is something that underpins the, the sense, the icon, the symbol of the five arrows, which many people will have seen everywhere. Um, five arrows symbolizing the five sons of Meyer Amschel Rothschild. And it's very clear from their letters that this is a message that their father had told them many, many times, referring back to um, historical concepts of it being easy to break one arrow, but very, very difficult to break a bundle of five. So together you're stronger, you, you know, you've got a better chance of surviving. If one partner has a bad year, the other four can, can help that partner survive that particular crisis. So it's really the, the basis, I think, that historical basis has not gone away. It's expressed in different ways um, and put into practice in different ways. But fundamentally, we've carried that um, principle through to today. And the network sense of not just your brothers, but your cousins, your brothers-in-law, the people you work with, and your clients. So you, you are part of the partnership. Whatever your role is, it, everybody is important. And I said in the 1848 revolution, this time when nobody knew what was going to be the outcome, um, there's a, a sense of support that there will be a continuation of the Rothschild business then in some way, one way or another. Um, and that comes into um, thinking about the Viennese bank in the 1930s. The family lost their business after the Anschluss. Um, so there was never a chance of, of getting back together again. In the 1920s, however, in the 1930s, the Rothschild businesses had helped the Austrian business, the Viennese house, to cope with a severe financial crisis. But that was a sense of it being everybody's responsibility too. So we share good times, but we also share difficult times. And, and as I say, hopefully we can, we can get through better. And the, the, in fact, it was interesting um, in 2003 when our then chairman, Sir Evelyn Rothschild, retired. The archive received lots of inquiries about who this new chairman was, this man from France, who's going to be the new chairman. And we were able to point to the Rothschild family tree to show that through generations of the family, and Alex is the seventh generation of the family to be at the head of it, there have been lots of movements, depending on where the expertise and the talent is and the num physical numbers sometimes of members of the family, but together it's a business that can, that can go on and carry on from generation to generation. I hope I've demonstrated that it's clear that we've been consistent in the approach that we've had since our origins. But you, you have to evolve. You can't just do the same thing over and over again in the same way. You have to bring in more modern ways of dealing with it. You have to innovate constantly and evolve. So how are we doing, Dean? How are we handling this current crisis? Well, I couldn't agree with you more about the need to keep innovating. Uh, we've talked a lot about the history. Uh, uh, today, but obviously that need to be flexible and adaptive and keep 
innovating and, as you've said, looking forward as well is, is crucial. I guess if I had to sum up how we've been doing in those terms through this period, I would say, I'm glad to say we were very early onto it. Uh, we had already, in fact, tested the whole infrastructure associated with all of us working away from the office. We'd have periodic tests over time, most recently, in fact, in January. And internally, for some years now, in fact, we've already been making use of online communications platforms, which has certainly been very helpful now in the current period. So it's certainly, I think, true to say in this context at this time, that we have been able to adapt very quickly and with confidence uh, to cope with this particular crisis. Our IT, you mentioned the IT people, Melanie, I think quite rightly, our IT has been excellent. Uh, within a matter of days, everybody across the business was working from home. We had full service connectivity and with all our clients, and as I alluded to earlier, heightened communications with many, if not most of our clients too, during this period. So. Uh, without being in any way complacent, because that would be entirely inappropriate, I think it is fair to say that service to clients has been pretty seamless, uh, and that applies to, to our internal communications and our operations. Uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that not only are we all working from home, but our client base and the investments uh, that we are making on their behalf are worldwide. And so the communications really have been cross-border. They really have been international. And that includes not just calls and emails, but client meetings and even pitches, I'm glad to say, online. So I suppose if I had to sum up in that regard, I think I would say that given our long history and our consistent values, we have still uh, in respecting all of those, nevertheless, managed to always look forwards, not at all resting on our laurels. And not only have we learned from the past, we have also, as you were alluding to, adapted over time. And we know that we need to remain flexible, both to survive these periodic crises and also to thrive and move forward. So I suppose it is clear that we are always learning from our history, uh, just from this conversation. And we're at Rothschild and Co. We're privileged to have a whole host of history at our fingertips to learn from. Melanie, briefly tell us, how will the archive continue to play into that as we look ahead? As I said, we're in a really privileged position because we do look back, archivists and historians look back and nobody creates archives. It's worth saying that people create documents that they need for their daily life. Uh, and we have the privilege of, of looking after them. Um, so I, I will take you back to 1999, uh, another historic event in the history of, of the Rothschild name. In that year, the Evelyn de Rothschild, our then chairman, created the Rothschild Archive Trust, which was a really sensible, clever thing to do because it meant that the archive was um, it became a charitable and educational charity, but it meant that lots of different branches of the Rothschild family began to see it as a kind of family attic in a sense. So we're the safe place to look after documents, for looking after a shared past. And that 
trust actually the way he created the trust was inspirational to lots of other family businesses too so we were innovative in that in that uh, step forward as well but obviously the archives have been around for as long as they were created but archives need to um, continue they need to um, add to their content otherwise you haven't got that continuity you you've only got a, a small snapshot of business so we've been since we became a charity, even more committed to encouraging research into the collections. Um, our trustees act in the public good. Uh, that's what they're supposed to do. And they encourage people to propose their own research proposals, to look at um, Rothschild history where it might be the complete focus of a PhD student's research, or there might just be one small box or a file of letters that will help someone to complete an entirely other PhD or MA or write their book or whatever it is that they want to do. So that's it's a really important relationship to develop. I feel really privileged to be in that position. And I think the archive and the business and the researchers each benefit from it um, because we're not experts in every aspect of Rothschild history. Um, but some of our researchers are really experts in the history of copper or orchids, for example. Um, and so we can take their expertise and help the bank and the business to, to understand its own history. Um, that's one of the things that I think is a real privilege to be able to do, that you're using the past and, and helping people to, to grow from it. And so the, the, the trust concept, I think, was great in that respect. Um, and we want to continue recording history. As I said, we're making history today. Um, everything we do is going to be at some point somebody else's history. Um, so we thought in the early days of lockdown, what can the archivists do? Uh, what will our role be? And we asked colleagues globally if they'd like to send us their own recollections and reflections on what this period has been like for them. And that's been great, too, because that's our network. We've had contact with people that we've never known from the other side of the world. One of our first contributions was the, a picture of the streets outside the office in Shanghai, deserted, uh, nobody there at the time. And people are sending us screenshots of their teams meeting, videos of, of their activities with their children and so on. So it's going to be a challenge to make sure that we get all these resources in a digitally stable form for the future. But hey, what's life if not a challenge? That's something we need to learn a little bit more about. Uh, but it's been great not only then to consider that we're sharing the experience with our contemporaries, but we're sharing the experiences over time as well, so that these resources will be part of the archives um, sources for future historians. And we can tell our story uh, to the business in the future as well, I'm sure. A lovely sentiment, Melanie, a lovely sentiment, I think, on which to, to close this podcast. I think one thing hopefully this demonstrates is that Rothschild & Co has always been an international business working across vast distances. And that's been integral to the firm's approach from our very origins, as, as, as you've demonstrated today, Melanie. And our history, I guess, shows that times of crisis such as this can encourage positive change, forcing us to take a moment to look at how we are doing things. We believe that we are still adhering to the values and approaches that have served us so well in the past, whilst also adapting and looking forward as a business. 
Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.